Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 20, and in this episode, you'll be hearing my voice throughout as it is a solo podcast. I'll be talking a lot about some industry trends and analysis, reflecting on esports in 2018, looking at some trends and what I think is upcoming for 2019. Also, we put out a Q&A across LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, so I'll be answering some of the questions that came in through that too. There's quite a few different questions from a broad range of experience there, so I think whether you're experienced in esports or quite new to the scene, you might be able to get a few things out of it. Also, make sure you head off to bigesports.gg forward slash education. We have just launched our esports fundamentals course for pre-registration, and we're about to start giving away some free information there soon. So if you're looking to make your own entry into the industry or just looking to learn more or upskill, this may be for you. Before we kick off into the podcast, we've just got a quick word from our sponsor and then we'll get right into it. One of the best things you can do for esports in Australia or abroad is support those companies that support you. What we do here in Australia at Big Esports is we've partnered with PLE Computers. They're a PC retailer that sell all of the best gaming gear. They also make a whole bunch of custom PCs, whether it's a full water-cooled massive rig to play Crisis at full graphics, or whether it's something nice and simple to take to LAN parties, play CSGO, Rocket League, Fortnite, or otherwise. They've got these different solutions for you. What we're doing with PLE is instead of just a general advertising partnership, we're trying to educate audiences and we're trying to grow the local scene. So PLE are working with us on our mentor courses where we're providing discount on both shipping and parts to the people that join in. We've partnered with them on our high school bootcamp where we're educating high school students on mental health, physical health and wellness, along with technology integration, understanding how they can take apart and build their own computers and save money on pre-builds. We're also working with them on this podcast, which we're hoping is educating all of you, not only on just talking to cool people and understanding how they think and feel, but what their struggles are, how their businesses work and how the back end works. So if you're looking to support a company that supports the scene, make sure you check out PLE at ple.com.au and grab yourself a bargain. So you may have seen some short analysis videos coming out across big esports and my own LinkedIn recently talking about a few different industry trends and topics that have interested me and trying to spur a little bit more conversation and kind of see what the endemic and non-endemic markets think and and what more they want to know. So in this podcast what I'm doing is talking a little bit about those and expanding them more so and then also touching on just a few different topics that I think are of pointed interest for esports in Australia, New Zealand, but also abroad. Jumping straight into it is the international expansion for esports brands. There's a lot of expansion that's being toted into our region here in Australia, but also globally. So what you're seeing right now is is brands have feeling that they've established themselves enough in their one in their one country or their one continent. Let's say they're based in Europe or, or the Americas, and they're looking to expand that brand out globally. Now, obviously, generally what that means is having a footprint that's not just digital, because you know a lot of the esports market, whether you're in America, you're advocating to an English-speaking audience. So you're reaching some people in Europe, you're reaching a lot of people in Australia and New Zealand, you're reaching the English-speaking audience across Southeast Asia, etc. So digitally, your footprint is already all over the world. But if you really want to expand into that space and own it, the physicality is what's starting to come in. So one way that we've seen that here in Australia is Fnatic, you know, global powerhouse esports team, and has been for, for decades now. They purchased or 
or took over the ex-Mind Freak Rainbow Six Siege team, who are, you know, one of the best in the world. And following that, they also mentioned that they're very interested in expanding their operations further into our region here. There's also a lot of live venues and activations that we'll be talking about soon too. But there's also Team Liquid with their Liquid Media brand. Powerhouse has also expanded into this local place here. We've seen Gfinity come over from the UK into Australia. And we're seeing the similar happen all over the world as well. I am focusing on Australia primarily here at the moment. But, you know, you're seeing a lot of Southeast Asian brands look to expand overseas. You're seeing some Chinese brands that are, that are coming over and, and kind of a mass migration into China. If you're looking at the endemic sponsor market, for example, China is such a major focus for all of these kind of brands. You know, Razer, Corsair, Thermaltake, etc. You know, if you look at if you look at what their marketing is is based towards and where their expansion is going when they're hiring more staff, it's just it's just becoming China, China, China because you know, as anyone listening here knows, the economies of scale there is ridiculous. You know, would you rather everyone in China give you one cent? or everybody in Australia give you $1, you know, the the amounts are, are non-comparable. Uh, and you got to check my maths on that one. So, you know, recapping this first point, international expansion for esports brands in a physical sense, not just digital. So whether that means opening a physical facility footprint or opening a satellite office, or whether it means, you know, coming into the space to creating something completely new or simply investing into you know, uh, a home VC or a, or a home company. Next up, like I mentioned just before, is live venues and activations being a focus. It's plagued the Australian esports industry for a lot of time, and we've seen this overseas quite a bit in, in some different nations, in the fact that there are so many people that play video games here in Australia, but they're not unlocked into the esports audience. They're not coming to these live events. They're not coming to things in person. It's so much easier for people such as myself who work with the non-endemic brands to explain to them the power of esports when I can take them to an IEM and say, look, here are all of the esports fans. They are real. You know, there's only so many graphs and figures and charts you can show them and hype videos of other countries and big tournaments happening like the League of Legends Worlds, the Dota 2 International Finals. You know, that all looks well and good, but when they actually come into the live venue and the live facility, it wins them over. Now, non-endemic Sponsors aren't the be-all end-all of esports. They're not the only way we're going to grow and they're not the only thing that we should pay attention to, but they definitely are one slice of the pie. Another one is just looking at esports incomes. If you can start bringing fans out of the woodwork and bringing them into community-type spaces and live activations, you can make definitely make more dollars per fan off them too. If you think about just trying to activate with someone digitally, let's say that your goal as an esports organization is to grow your Instagram to 100,000 followers. That's fantastic and you can get some great reach for that, which you can possibly on-sell to sponsors. However, the direct income from your fans can be hard. You know, maybe you're selling some merchandise, um, maybe you're doing some affiliate marketing and some affiliate codes through Amazon or G Fuel or otherwise. But, you know, what do those 100,000 fans actually mean without you being able to activate on them or bring them to live things? And you've seen the power of this in any traditional sport. You go to any sports ground across the world and watch your team play. Often you're going there with a jersey because you want to be part of it. You're purchasing food and beverages at the venue. You're likely seeing some sponsor live activations happening there too, where you can talk with the people in person um, and also where you can, you know, purchase things like I mentioned before, 
and possibly purchase extra products from said company and through show specials. But you're, so many more transactions are taking place. If I just tune in and watch the International in Dota 2 online, like I do quite often, let's say that the compendium didn't exist, there's not really making much money from me there. However, if they had local viewing parties that I could go to, I would very likely go to that local viewing party. I would pay a ticket to attend. I'd then purchase some food and drink, maybe some water while I was there, you know, maybe some lunch if it went over that period of time or dinner, etc. And there's so many more ways to grab money out of me while you've got them locked into that one venue. So what we're seeing globally is esports arenas are opening up, internet cafes are changing, we're seeing esports bars pop up, and not just bars in the fact that they're an internet cafe where you can purchase alcohol and drink while you play with your friends and and others. But in Australia, there's a bar called Gigi Easy Bar, which is basically a sports bar, except on the TVs, instead of tennis, instead of football, instead of golf or anything else, it's actually esports It's and Twitch streams. So it's a lovely soft integration there, and I kind of call it a soft integration in the fact that a normal person who's just looking to grab some good food and, and some good drink, which they do have, can go there and do so without really having esports shoved down their throat. And I love that kind of environment. For me, while I'm involved in the esports industry, on a professional and personal level, I'm quite invested. I think it's a fantastic place where I can relax and, and not have that kind of esports persona um, being shoved down my throat throughout that whole time to say, hey, come play video games. This is who you are. This is all you can do. Sometimes I want to relax, watch a little bit of a Dota stream, you know, have some nice food with my mates and a couple of drinks and, and chill out and hang out together outside of staring at a computer screen playing video games together. So to recap this one a little bit, really what I'm talking about here is live venues and activations being a focus, not only for companies coming into the space, but a fantastic way for the esports industry to grow its revenue as a whole and to start making some more money out of the fans that are involved in it and not just through the personal ways of the fans handing over their checkbooks to these companies but also proving to the sponsors that these fans are real and engaging in them in more ways than just posting memes on social media now a recent non-endemic sponsor trend that you may have noticed is automotive brands getting into esports and that's becoming you know, very prevalent right now. Team Liquid have just announced their partnership with Honda, and you know that seems to be some fantastic news that's, that's gone quite large. We've seen in the past BMW and Mercedes, etc., becoming involved. So it's kind of the next wave. Obviously, you know, the first wave you could probably argue is energy drinks with uh, Monster and Red Bull and and you know even G Fuel gamer supplements types of companies coming out of the woodwork being, um, you know, ones that are really become involved in the space. And they're quite a natural fit. You know, gamers want to stay up a long time. They might want to purchase and, and consume an energy drink to be able to, you know, fuel them through those sessions, just like I used to do a lot when I was younger, playing a lot of Battlefield 2 with, with Coca-Cola, etc. So, you know, then what, what are the other non-endemics that are a fantastic fit? Nielsen did a report here in Australia where they surveyed some fans and asked them, you know, what kind of brands do you want to see within the region? Their sample size was honestly a little bit low, so you can take their results with a grain of salt. But they have some interesting statistics if you want to look them up. That's Nielsen as N-I-E, Nielsen, not N-E-I, which I often spell quite wrong. But going back to my question is really is what non-endemics do you want to see in esports i think automotive is a fantastic fit i mean taking it from a personal level once again i've been kind of a car nut for a long time and a lot of my friends have been there's a lot of integration of car culture into gaming and esports there's a big crossover with anime as well which which can be you know said to have different sections of car culture within it and there's so many racing games that are around you know need for speed um 
hits a lot of the history of myself and my friends and and Forza and other games of the like too even to Trackmania you know being at the World Cyber Games and being a quite a successful esport for its time even though it did peak far far too early I guess to be on the same scale and and I guess even now with Rocket League becoming into the space so Trying not to necessarily focus on what's happened because all of these car brands are becoming involved, everyone from Subaru to Mercedes, Audi, um, BMW, and, and now Honda. But my question, I guess, is is for you who are listening at the moment to think about what kind of brands are the next perfect fit to jump into esports. Generally, what I say is more brands brings more brands or more business brings more businesses. So by that, what I mean is, let's say that you're the first ever team within a region to get a chocolate sponsor comes on board with you. It's very likely that the other chocolate sponsors or or potential sponsors are surveying the market and they say, well, if Mars and, and the Mars bar have jumped into this industry, maybe we should too. Let's start looking into it. So it's quite often, I think, that you'll find these batches of companies coming into the space. One thing that I would love to see that seems to be a bit of a weird or unusual fit at first, but bear with me, is uh, white goods, or they call them large appliances, depending on what country you come from, manufacturers. So I'm talking about fridges, washing machines, dryers, and et cetera, et cetera, coming into the space. Using yet another personal anecdote here is that I moved out of home when I was 18, 19 years old for a job in the industry. I had no idea what any of those to buy were. I don't watch TV, traditional TV. I haven't, you know, over the past 10, 15 years, really. I get all of my content from Netflix, YouTube, Twitch, et cetera, which is the typecast of the millennial as anyone here is pitching esports as pitched to potential sponsors many, many, many times. So I had no idea what to purchase. I've never had any of those ads coming at me from LG or Westinghouse, Fisher & Paykel, Melee, etc. So that's a that's an interesting fit, I find. Maybe not perfect. Maybe my analysis is a little bit off, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and feedback on that as well. You can hit me up at Twitter at Smithy Mayo and yeah, tell me what you think about that. And I'd love to hear some other brands and target brands. Some things that some fantastic uh, esports heavy BDM and salespeople are doing is kind of targeting industries, and that's something we do here a little bit about at Big Esports as well. Is say, okay, you know, we think that this target industry would be fantastic to get into esports. Let's try our absolute hardest for the next week, the next month, the next quarter, however long, to generate some leads within that industry and find how interested they are. Let's say that, you know, white goods is your target industry for right now. So for the next month, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out with my with my sales agents and with myself and try to find as many leads into that industry as possible and kind of, you know, poke and prod them, see if they've got some interest. If they don't, maybe I'll uh, kind of turn them down, uh, turn them down a notch or leave them for a while and, and come back to them later. Or maybe I'll keep pursuing them depending on how the conversations go. But what I'm trying to say here is that, Maybe targeting industries as much as just targeting brands is a fantastic thing to do. My other uh, interesting analysis for that is looking into local brands, uh, tying back into the live venues and activations being a focus. Local brands also have marketing money. Most of the esports teams that I work with here in, in Australia and abroad, quite often they'll come to me. Let's say they're a tier two or tier three team. They come to me and say, hey, Chris, can you help me get a sponsorship from Razer, from Logitech, from Corsair, Thermaltake, MSI, etc.? any of the typecast endemic esports brands? And I say to them, look, they're already sponsoring two, maybe three teams within your region. Um, they've got limited marketing budgets, judging by what their market size is. 
and they're already doing fantastic work in that area. So either you're going to have to steal them from another team or another influencer or another event, or you're going to have to hope that they've got some extra budget available for you to put towards you and what you're doing. And that's not me saying that you should never reach out to these brands and you shouldn't try to get sponsored by them. But what I say to them is look at local businesses. So using a very Australian example, here we've got uh, Next Tier Esports up in the Northern Territory, a very kind of rural country based uh, territory. And it's called a territory, not a state for, for this particular one here in Australia. And they run a whole bunch of internet cafe tournaments. They have their own internet cafe and community center where people come in. And what they did was, instead of just trying to pitch nonstop to SteelSeries, Razor, etc., to expand their budgets, they worked with local businesses. They got in touch, in touch with a local crocodile farm. And there's no reason that people like that couldn't get in touch with the local mechanic, etc. Because if you have a live venue and you've got a physical space where people are coming in from the community, there is no reason why you can't go to your local mechanic or your local uh, food store and say, hey, can you sponsor me on a local level? Because the local crocodile farm doesn't necessarily care about how many fans you might have in America or Germany. They will care a lot about how many people you have coming to your live facility, which is only... 20 minutes down the road from their facility and maybe you can direct some of your traffic to them once they're finished playing their games or they want to go out to do something on the weekend with their family or with their friends. So what I'm trying to say here is don't always think endemic and don't always think massive non-endemic. Think councils, think local government, think local businesses, think mechanics and plumbers, etc. If you look around at any local sporting team as well, around the world, whether you're in England or Australia or America, a lot of these local social sporting teams will also have local companies that are sponsoring them. So there's no reason why esports can't go to that local level as long as you've got something to provide to them. So you're not necessarily pitching to them how many Twitter followers you have or how many concurrent viewers you get on Twitch TV. You're talking to them about this is how many people like get to my meetups. This is how many people come watch us playing live at an internet cafe. This is how many fans through our Twitter demographics we have in exactly your state or your region. And there's no reason that you can't start reaching out to sign writing companies, um, local mechanics, local workshops, plumbers, tradesmen, builders, um, bricklays, etc., who are already sponsoring the local football team, the local soccer team, the local golf club, etc. There's no reason they couldn't come across into esports as long as you can prove to them the product market fit. That's not saying it's going to be easy, but any non-endemic education path in esports is not easy, and I don't think we'd do it if it was super easy. Or we'd have so many more people in the market if it was super easy. But for me, the challenge is is all part of the fun. One other topic that I've been discussing, and, and this isn't one that I've released a video on for sure, is the topic of are endemic brands going to be priced out? And I come from an endemic brand background, working at Corsair for two years and Thermal Takers for four years as um, you know community marketing, esports, PR, social, uh, live events, etc., sponsorship, handling, all that kind of stuff. And that was one concern for me, I guess, on that level of being priced out. If you're looking at costs of influencers right now, it is definitely steadily increasing. There's a lot of non-endemic money that's starting to come into the space, generally with bigger budgets who can do some some bigger and and arguably better things. So you're you know you're seeing that kind of things happen. And that where does that leave the endemic sponsors? In the past, you've got these teams, like I mentioned before in the last question or the last topic, and you've also got influencers as such that have always been looking towards those endemic sponsors to support 100% of what they do. 
But like I mentioned before, they've only got a certain amount of marketing budget. They've only got a certain amount of industry that they can sell to. However, if you're talking about uh, influencer that has some influence across, say, traditional automotive and uh, racing and also gaming, there's a wider market that they can have a bit of a reach to there. And that means that an automotive sponsor who's a much larger company and has a much larger, larger marketing budget is very likely to pay uh, quite a hefty price to become working with them. And that's not saying that endemics are necessarily underpaying per CPM and these uh, non-endemics are overpaying per CPM. But a lot of the time, what I find it boils down to is size of the deal. So if you're becoming an influencer agency, for example, and a company comes to you and says, hey, I really want to work with X talent of yours. We want to do this one project, but we've got a budget of $1,000 USD. And your cut for this is going to be 20% internally. Is it really worth your time as a business to go and have some meetings with them? Maybe you have to fly or to drive or at least have an hour-long Skype call with this uh, company. You need to agree on the deliverables. You need to um, then establish that with your talent and help explain it to them. And your talent needs to understand what they need to do and, and agree to all the terms and then you need to go ahead and actually complete the project and as the company you have to go back and report and maintain that conversation with the client so if the whole project is a thousand usd and you're taking 20 percent, that's 200 dollars in your pocket is that enough money for you to justify those multiple hours of work plus paying for your rent your utilities your lighting etc a lot of the time it isn't so that means that the endemic brands what they have to do is go direct with the uh, talent, which then limits the amount of talent they can work with. It also makes it much more hand-on for their marketing and PR manager because they have to physically get hands-on with this talent and set the deliverables and do all that work themselves. So they're doing double the amount of hours of work while they're trying to manage multiple other things at the same time. Let's say they've got some product launches, some some PAX events that are coming up, some trade shows, some esports events, and they're also working with their esports team. At the same time, they're trying to micromanage five or six influencers to do some $1,000 each projects along the run. So, you know, that's one thing to keep into account. And that's one thing that I'm very interested in monitoring over this time is, you know, especially with Australia here, where, you know, probably about three to five years behind where the US is. So I've been trying to do a little bit of research into the US market and say, okay, the endemics aren't priced out there at all. However, a lot of the headquarters and a lot of the big marketing funds are within the US. So is it a regional thing where we're going to see some issues? Are we going to see Australia and New Zealand find some massive issues where it's simply just not worth the influencer's time as a business case scenario to work with a lot of endemics anymore? Are we going to see them priced out of Working with esports teams, are we not going to see them on front of jersey? Are we going to see them move to back or to or to the sleeves or to the collar? And yeah, I'm very interested to see how this one plays out. So for me, I don't have a direct answer for it, but what I wanted to do was be quite open and, and give my thoughts and, and feelings about this. And then for me, it's kind of a watch this space and we'll see what happens. One of the last things I wanted to discuss is uh, the conversation about a possible market correction in regards to teams in the industry. It's obvious that esports teams have been progressing quite rapidly. They've been reaching the global esports press around capital raises, around their expansion with their players. You know, they're paying much more salaries now. They're expected to provide such larger and more lavish, I guess, living and travel conditions for their for their talent, which, which is, you know, quite rightfully so. But the question really is, can their cash flow and their revenue coming in sustain that? If you look at a recent Forbes article that came out, they said that there's only one kind of tier one team in the world that they studied, which is cash flow positive or even. 
Uh, the rest are running in the negative. And, you know, esports is definitely in startup right now. And I think I've mentioned that in probably once in every single podcast that's happened um, throughout all of the, the big podcast series is that esports is in a startup phase right now, which means that they're kind of fighting to make revenue. They're scaling up as best they can. They're raising more money. However, when does that stop? We're seeing the raises are getting bigger and bigger. We're seeing a lot of the prices are becoming larger and larger. Um, Red Eye released through Code Red Esports, uh, a kind of a very basic infographic that talked about a lot of players are uh, earning five hundred thousand dollars salaries and such now too in the in the top of the top regions. So is that money being backfed into these teams? According to the Forbes report, not necessarily right now, but as with any startup, can you scale in time before you run out of that runway of of money that you've raised to? Um, you know, be able, to, be able to continue operating as a business and, and growing into the future. So one, you know, kind of thing that's come out across a lot of the esports, you could call them esports analysts or kind of people who've been involved and, and like to get in part of these discussions is that there is a possible market correction coming for these teams. You know, we might see some teams start to fall over in the next uh, six to, to 18 months because their revenue just isn't scaling enough. Uh, a lot of the teams, you know, they're not necessarily making rights monies from things. They're relying on sponsorships. If you go back to my uh, previous discussion topic in this podcast, talking about are endemic brands going to be priced out, there's a possibility in my mind that the endemic brands just simply don't have enough marketing budget to pay for these large global teams to be able to sustain that large global team's business model. A lot of the times teams will come to me and say, you know, how much should I pitch for a sponsorship? And I can say, look, there's there's an idea here of what the market rate is. But if is if that market rate is not enough to sustain your business model, then something has to change. Either you have to get more money from them, you have to get more sponsors to give you the same amount of money, or you need to change your business model to be spending less money. And that sounds quite simple, and it really is, but it's can be hard to implement because you're pressured by market factors. Let's say that your average team sponsorship is $5,000 a month in this region and you need to pay your players $5,000 a month each times five or times six, including a coach. There is no way that that makes financial sense for you to be able to continue a long time into the future unless you can sell yourself a ridiculously amount of sponsors to, let's say, 12 sponsors at $5,000 a month to pay for that plus operating costs, legal and not even taking into account team housing, but taking into account supporting staff as well. And it's just not necessarily feasible to have 12 jersey sponsors at $5,000 a month. And there's only so many endemic sponsors that exist in the market, especially that don't conflict. You know, if you're working with someone like Alienware, they make so many different products. They're going to conflict with Asus. At the same time, they're probably going to conflict with BenQ. Or if you work with Corsair, you've got a similar aspect where they make peripherals as well as components, RAM and SSD, as well as their purchase of Elgato means that there's so many companies you can't work with while being uh, in cahoots with them. So keeping those kind of things into mind, it's very interesting to see. I think in the US, you know, some people have been saying now, well, teams seem to be outscaling that. Um, and in Europe as well, you know, working with Audi, working with BMW, you know, we've recently seen Team Liquid's partnership with Honda, like I mentioned before, a massive sponsorship. And we don't know what the back end of their deal is. It's, you know, not up to Team Liquid to tell us that. But it's up to us to look at that and say, okay, is the amount of money that, that they're now earning from that able to offset their player salaries and such and for them to start making a profit? Look, this isn't me saying that I understand exactly what these brands and companies should be doing. It's not me saying that the teams are doing it wrong. What I'm trying to do here is analyze where the market is currently at, where it is going and say, okay, what what are the gaps here? What can I help fill? What 
can I bring more knowledge and information to and help and and how can I help educate not only business people within the space but also brands wanting to come into there and you know do a bit of work with investors here as well and can I say to them confidently that yes you invest in an esports team in Australia you're going to be able to pick up enough brand recognition you're going to be able to pick up enough sponsorships and also merchandise sales and licensing fees etc to be able to become cash flow even within six months and start making money back. Because ultimately, you know, six months mightn't be the target. It might be one year. It might be one month. Who knows? Maybe they want to be cash flow positive before they invest or at least have some kind of revenue happening. I don't know exactly, and it depends on what the sponsors are. But I definitely don't want this taken out of context in in people thinking that I'm saying I know what's best for the industry. What I'm trying to say is where are we at? And how can we get to somewhere better? And what's the path to getting there? So I'm almost asking three lots of questions at once, and I'm trying to figure them out with everybody else as we go ahead. So like I was mentioning before, before I digressed, if you know if the market calls for the fact that you have to have $60,000 salaries for your players, however, you're only selling ten dollars to $20,000 sponsorships per quarter or per year, then that doesn't make financial sense and something has to change. We either need to start making more money, you need to not exist in the market, or it's due for a market correction. And that goes for the cash flow side. And then obviously a lot of the investment side will follow. You know, it's hard to raise a lot of money if you can't prove that you're going to be, you know, feasible into the future. So I think we're seeing a lot of US brands that are doing a fantastic job. You know, 100 Thieves with their merchandise sales seem to be going absolutely bonanza. You know, FaZe have, have been an, uh, kind of a powerhouse really coming across from, you know, content creation into the esports space into kind of call of duty only then branching out into pc and with their streetwear vibe too like 100 days doing very well you know team liquid with honda fanatic with having their own brands and pop-up shops and owning their own peripheral company too so you know i'm not here necessarily to say that a lot of the teams aren't going to function well into the future but i definitely think that that's something to look out for and it's something to watch a last point that people ask me quite a lot is how do I stay updated with what's going on? And for me, it's not necessarily one answer. And I covered this a lot in my previous mentor courses and we'll also cover it in an upcoming mentor course. But basically, it's it's a myriad of different spaces. So, you know, I like to stay subscribed and updated to some of the best international publications like Dot .esports, um, the Esports Observer, and otherwise, if you just Google Esports Business News, you'll likely be hit with the top ones. And that's a fantastic place to start. LinkedIn is a great place to add some quality people on LinkedIn um, and try to expand your network as much as possible, especially if you can target. I mentioned before about targeting brands for sponsorship. There's no reason that you can't target uh, business people within the space. So looking at, you know, let's say that you understand that Fanatic's one of the biggest teams in the world. Well, go to Fanatic's uh, company on LinkedIn, look at the employees and add all of the senior, all of the marketing, all of the leadership, etc. And you're going to be able to learn a lot from people just sharing information. A fantastic thing about the esports industry is that across different social medias and in person, people are very good at information sharing. They're very happy to share with you some insider information that you wouldn't normally get out of other industries. And you know, you could tie that up to esports being welcoming. You could also tie that up to esports being a growing and rather infant and new industry. Either way, if you're looking to learn and you're looking to ask the questions, you can do so. If you're interested in the local market, I have a Facebook group around 2,000 strong called the Oceania Esports and Gaming Business Facebook group. There's also a Southeast Asian Esports Business group and there's also a global esports marketing group on Facebook too that you can join and there's a lot of information shared on there. 
And once again, Twitter's a fantastic way. If you're following the esports managers, team owners, marketing staff, business development um, across not just the esports teams, like I mentioned, but the tournaments, events, influencer and marketing companies, that's another fantastic way to, to become informed. So what I'm saying here is you kind of need to develop your own path. It is hard sometimes in esports because you don't necessarily have someone who would call themselves an expert in sport in general because it's such a wide term. It means that, you know, maybe you've, Got to have sufficient knowledge of Formula One as well as tennis and dirt bike racing and the Paris Dakar and football leagues, both local and international, which can be very hard because there's so much information to keep up with. So what I would say is kind of pick the information you're trying to learn and follow people. For me, uh, a thing I learned from a... uh, a startup kind of serial startup and, and blockchain person Jamie Skeller is to be quite prudent with the people you follow on Twitter and that's what I follow so usually what I'll do on Twitter is is I will only follow specific people I think they'll be able to provide me some good information or have some kind of specific purpose whether I'm trying to track the brand and see how they market with their audience and how they grow whether I'm following a specific influencer that I'd like to work with in the future or whether I just find their content very engaging and interesting that I can try to get some ideas off in the future I will do that too So that's one way. Some people are quite prudent with people they follow or pages they like on Facebook or on LinkedIn or other social medias too. So sometimes you can use social medias to your benefit. So I hope that was some interesting discussion for you and maybe there were some things you were already thinking about or maybe there were some things that uh, you're going to think about a lot more now. I want to jump straight into the Q&A. So we asked a lot of questions across our big esports social medias, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you're not already following, feel free to do so. And just kind of ask people, you know, what what are you looking for in the industry? What are your roadblocks? Is there something you need help with? And what would you like to know? Which is fairly standard as to what we do here at Big. So I may as well get straight into it. So question number one is, uh, what tools are we missing from the industry here in Australia? So tools could be taken many different ways. So I'm just going to try to approach this one off the cuff and see what I can do with it. What I would say is in regards to, you know, what companies are missing and what market segments are open to be taken. I think if you look at the industry here in Australia, you've got an abundance of esports teams. Tier 1, 2 and 3 teams are quite stacked. There's plenty of those. There's plenty of investor interest. There's plenty that have already been invested in. So you could raise some money and go ahead and compete with what they're currently doing. Or if you've got an interest in another area, you can progress to somewhere else. Next is events. There are tons of events and competitions here in Australia. You've got Let's Play Live with their recent acquisition of cybergamer.com.au. You've got ESL in Australia, Gfinity, and then a whole bunch, plethora of kind of tier two and and otherwise, and and some big once-off competitions happening here too, whether it's qualifiers for other regions or just in case I've missed anything else. So once again, teams and events slash tournaments are quite wrapped up. There's a lot of those already. So then you're looking kind of at anything else, really. If you're looking from a traditional sporting aspect and you want to refer that across to esports, there are so many more companies that are involved. We're seeing high performance start to kind of come into the market with the High Performance Center in Sydney. The Adelaide Crow slash Legacy have talked about there, um, launching a high performance center a while ago now in Adelaide, uh, and then some other musings of things like order releasing the House of Order and such. So, you know, that is a that is a gap that I think is uh, a a tool that tier three, two, even tier one players aren't getting enough access to that they can. And what is a high performance center? is 
a logical question for you to ask and it's kind of a place where people can come and develop their skills so if you think about it as like a training center or almost like a gym in the fact that a lot of the time there are some people who might hire out sections of this training center to facilitate their own coaching nutritional advice professional development or you might have some trainers that are full-time there that are shared across different properties which you're seeing a lot at the sydney esports high performance center guinevere capital Guinevere Capital have their teams that are involved in there and they have a shared amount of um, staff across that help the performance development of all of these different teams. So you could look at it from either way. It could be a public one where any team can sign up, pay a fee and get access to some dietitians, dietitians, nutritionists, etc. Or it can be a closed circuit thing where you're servicing primarily kind of your own platforms, whether it's your own team or your own series of teams. So I think looking at that high performance thing, and obviously I've mentioned you know, kind of the health side of it, but there's also the wellness side. You're looking at mental coaches, um, you know, also physical conditioning, not just, you know, general general health, um, into performance coaching and such as well. You know, maybe there's a platform for a performance coach to, to work like a personal trainer where they work a couple of hours with tier two teams that can't afford a full-time coach. So maybe they can come in and do training and development with these teams while they're boot camping at a high performance center and, you know, really, really helps solidify their gameplay. And then besides that, there are so many different other avenues. You're seeing some um, talent management companies come into play now and play management companies. There's still not many of those. Digital marketing, creative agencies, you know, there's not many of those that specialize in the space. You know, even PR agencies, I guess there's a few now. So, you know, maybe that's a market that you want to avoid if, if um, you don't want to butt heads with the, with the current people that are functioning in that space. So I don't have an exact answer for you. I think that professional development... Um, pathways of success and ways to unlock uh, the community, which is what I talked about in the first half of this podcast about how you can unlock people to come to physical locations and grow the esports industry audience, both live and online, are some great ways for you to start looking into. The next question I've got here is someone asking about gaming houses versus bootcamp centers. So, I can't give you the exact answer as to what is the best, but I can give you an indication of what people are currently doing. So for quite some time now, since, you know, you could say 2011 or, or possibly even before, you know, there were a lot of StarCraft II houses in Korea, and it was quite common that you would have, you know, maybe a three-bedroom house with, with eight plus people living in it in bunk beds, all playing in the common areas, eating, living, training together with a shared coach or coaches across the whole lot of them. And that was quite common. So it's a living space as well as a gaming and working space. You've seen some kind of similar things happen in the in the next few years across all of the world in esports. You're seeing it in Call of Duty and Counter Strike, etc. People living and training and playing in the in the same kind of space. Now coming into 2018 and now we're in 2019, there's been a little bit of shift in perspective. So there still are a lot of gaming houses where people practice out of. But we're seeing some people tote the idea of having their own gaming facilities. So, for example, Team Liquid are building their massive facility. Complexity are also building a massive facility. And some teams already have these established. What we're seeing is that, or, or from my discussion, sorry, with different people within the space, they're saying that they want their players to not have to live and work in the same place, which is uh, legally 
advised as far as Australian workplace laws go, um, but I'm not a lawyer, so make sure you consult one yourself before you try to do any of this stuff, and I'm not able to give you legal advice. But what they're saying is that they're still maybe going to provide a house for these players or pay them enough money to allow the players to pay their own rent to cover all of those kind of costs, rent and living costs, and then have them come into an office every single day to play and train. Now, this can be combined with the high-performance facility that I was talking about before, or it can be completely separate where it's team offices and a training facility and maybe a public viewing area and public meetup area, internet cafe, what have you, bar, all slapped into one venue but with uh, kind of itemized spaces and, and different sections within it. So what we're seeing is that People are saying they, they want the players to be able to, you know, relax and live at home, have a girlfriend, have a dog, and not worry about four, five, six other guys and girls trying to live in the same house together. You know, maybe uh, if there's a mixture of guys and girls, maybe some of them aren't comfortable living in a house with people they haven't met before, they don't know them. Um, and also, it's a bit hard to have a stable life. Imagine if you've got a wife and kids and you're trying to play games at the same time. It's pretty hard. You're either going to have to live away from them and play away from them, or they're going to have to move in with you into a gaming house, which is an unlikely scenario to say the least. So what we're seeing is that these teams are saying, okay, let's provide you with a stipend to provide your own accommodation or we'll cover it for you. And then every day you're required to come into the quote-unquote office, which is the boot camp center or the training center or the high performance center to play your games, do your training, and then you can head home after that. Then they can do their own practice in their own time or otherwise. And that follows exactly the same as most traditional sporting codes, right? The tier one international sporting codes, they will organize the players' accommodation and look after them for the living and living expenses. And then they're required to come to their trainings and their games, you know, on in a timely manner and practice them every day. So I don't have uh, an exact answer as to the two, but what I'm seeing at the moment is there's a lot of shift from gaming houses only to people looking at these kind of training facilities and training centers. Question number three, how can you get into casting esports? So for me, that's where I started. And I think I'll give you the same advice uh, that we talked about in the last podcast. So if you haven't listened to podcast number 19 with uh, Mitch, the Uber Leslie, I suggest you go back there. He's a commentator that started off in Australia, went over to Germany for a while, doing World of Tanks some Counter-Strike, some other games here and there, and is now casting the Overwatch World League over in LA in America. So he's a fantastic person to, to understand his history and how he got to where he is today. And he delves into that a lot. But the crux of what we talked about is similar to what people ask when they say, I want to be a journalist, how do they get in? It's start writing, and the same with commentary is start commentating. So a way that some people have gotten in Australia is they've just volunteered their time to go commentate online tournaments through an existing platform, say GameStar or... Um, down under TV uh, and these other kind of companies within this local space. So you can go to them and say, hey, I'd like to start covering some tournaments. I'd like to understudy under your main commentators. You can start getting some airtime. Not only does that get you experience, it gets you confidence, but also a portfolio to then start pushing forward to some jobs in the future. It gets you awareness of yourself and your skills and allows you to develop them and your confidence over that time too. So once you've started doing something like that, you could maybe even start commentating things on your own channel. And we've seen that become a thing probably in the past five years or so. I've, I've noticed that becoming quite common where people have said, okay, there's not an existing company that I would like to commentate for. Um, maybe the ones that exist aren't able to pay me or I really want to build my own brand. So people are starting to commentate matches that aren't covered on their own 
uh, Twitch channels and then broadcasting and sharing those. So that's fantastic because not only does it grow your skills and awareness, but you're bringing people to your own platform. You own that channel so you can make some monetary gain or you can gain some followers and and start building a name for yourself. Who knows? Maybe you want to transition from that into become a professional Twitch streamer in the future. Shroud did exactly that, winning uh, kind of went from a professional CS:GO player into you know a battle royale specific streamer with PUBG, and, and now into various different FPS and, and third-person shooter games too. So that's a possibility as well. So once again, recapping is just start somewhere and stick with it. So whether you start working for another company like myself and Uber did with Netgame Radio, whether you start commentating yourself or otherwise, just make sure you get a start in and start creating that content. Another question I have here is a bit of a triple header. So I'll try to answer this one as quickly and efficiently as I can. So the guest here has asked, how do you prepare yourself as a member of support staff? And then in brackets, player and team management, or coaching or analysis, etc. for full-time work. They ask, what kind of skills and qualifications are required? How do you balance esports voluntary positions with full-time work and full-time study? And are better pathways or training necessary than what's currently available? So trying to break this down, it follows what I talk a lot about in the mentoring courses and it follows a lot about what we've talked about in previous podcasts. So the listener here is is asking, you know, they, they want to move into a supporting position of an esports team, it looks like here. So they don't necessarily want to be the star player and they don't necessarily want to be the team owner or the marketing director or social media. They want to work directly behind the players. So we're talking player and management, team management, coaching or analysis. So as far as the skills and qualifications are required, there's a massive advantage in the esports industry right now where it's in a startup mode where if you have the skills, the drive and the passion, it's very likely you can grab yourself a job, especially if it's not a super senior position. You know, I find it very unlikely that they're going to hire a, a head of marketing of ESL Global who doesn't have a marketing degree or, or at least any extensive, extensive experience marketing in the area. But if you're joining as a junior marketing associate, even for a large company in the esports space or a mid-level to high-level marketing associate in a tier two team or maybe a tier one that's just received funding, it's very likely you can become involved with minimal experience and no qualifications behind you. So in saying this, that means that you need to hone your skills yourself. So if you go back to the answer I gave before, um, to the listener who asked about getting into commentating for esports, make sure that you're honing your skills somewhere. So volunteer your time, start developing your own portfolio, start developing your skills and start building a case study. You know, one of the best ways to go about it is you can say, hey, I have managed this this team and I've been a coach and an analyst for them for one season. You can see the previous season they placed sixth. This current season they placed fourth. Here's some testimonials from them talking about how good of a coach I was, even though I was a volunteer. I put in all of the time and the effort and it really helped and did the extra research and the performance and the results showed Um you know, across this next season, two seasons, three seasons, what have you. So you can start building that portfolio and it's it's nothing else than just building a resume. And this is what people don't necessarily do in the esports space is that you could have almost two resumes. And this is what I have, for example. So especially when I was an employee in the space or when I'm working with companies that want to understand you know, do I know what I'm talking about? Have I been around in the industry? So I might have my regular resume, which could say that, you know, at 16 years old, I was working at KFC as a front counter and then a cook and, you know, I worked as a disability support worker, etc. But then the second resume will say, here is my esports experience. So from this time to this time, I was a top level competitor in Battlefield 2. And then I was a commentator for a period of time. I run some tournaments. Here are the tournaments. Here are the links. Um, and here is how they went and what was involved with the tournaments. You know, was I 
I commentated it, I conducted it, what was the prize pool, what was the scale and severity of the tournament. Um, you know, here's my job description when I did this certain task, when I worked in community management, here's what I did and, and for the company and, and the caliber, doing um, our own private and strategy and consultation work. You know, what clients have we worked with before? And it's going to win over a lot of people. You know, if you're applying to Fnatic to be their next coach for CSGO, it's extremely unlikely they're going to accept you if you don't have a proven track record and a history behind you. And you need to be able to start from somewhere and get that from somewhere. You could almost think about it in the, in the fact that if you finish a university degree and you're applying for an undergraduate job at a large firm, you're more likely to become accepted if you have an extensive working history, especially if you have a work industry, especially if you have a working history and also experience in that field, whether voluntary or casual or otherwise. So let's say that you've just finished and, and you're becoming a, a textile expert and you want to start developing a clothing line for a large uh, international company, say H&M. It's much more likely to me that they're going to accept you if you've worked in retail clothing for a long time. Maybe you've gone to some retail clothing expos and exhibited there or entered competitions in that region. Maybe you can bring along a portfolio of, of clothes that you've made and some concept designs that you can loan to them and say, hey, look, here is what I've been looking at creating and I think this is a wonderful addition for you. Rather than just rocking up, slapping your regimen on the table and saying, hey, hi, me, I really like clothes. You could... You can then really prove your value and prove your want to work really hard uh, by actually creating some of that experiences for yourself in the past. Uh, looking at the next question here, balancing esports voluntary positions with full-time work and full-time study. Um, I think that, you know, as with anything in life, it, it definitely is a balancing act. It is hard because esports can function until one in the morning a lot of the time and if you're trying to do full-time work and full-time study it can get in the way and I think that's finding the best fit for you when I played semi-professional CSGO which is what I class as, as me playing in in uh, a top you know top five top six team in Australia we're winning some money here and there but nothing to sustain ourselves but with the goal to go pro and playing as much as we could my absolute I could, you could call it a balance was playing 40 hours a week while working full-time which meant in my lunch break, I was watching replays. After work, I was playing every single day till 11 p.m. Saturday would be off slash a little bit of personal practice. Sunday would be a one-day competition or a cup or a live competition all day. So that meant that I was getting enough practice in and I was able to set my schedule with the goal to become a full-time professional player in Australia or overseas you know, in the near future, which obviously didn't eventuate, which is why I'm talking to you like this today. So, you know, and, and obviously my goals changed. So... You know, that's that's one thing to keep in mind is how much work can you do and can you fit into your schedule? There's no point you trying to talk to a full-time team and saying, hey, I will be your full-time coach for free, but also, by the way, I'm not available every day from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. That just doesn't work. So you need to find what suits you best. And this goes back to exactly the same answer um, or exactly the same analogy that I talked about in the first case scenario in saying that it doesn't matter what the market price is. If, if your business model doesn't suit what, the sponsors are paying, you need to change something. You need to change the business model or you need to change the sponsorship amount or the amount of sponsors. And the last one is definitely very hard to do. So you need to do this as well with you. You don't need to necessarily say to yourself, what does the team exactly uh, require out of a full-time staff, but what can I put in and then how can I fit that around what I'm doing? So maybe you can work as just a secondary uh, analyst for a while for a large team and that might function better for your quote-unquote esports resume than being the full-time coach for a tier 4 team that's last on the open ladder, if that makes sense. So I think, you know, recapping once again, 
what skills and qualifications are required. A lot of personal skill. It's up to you to develop those skills and to develop your expertise and experience within that region and that area and then push that into greater heights in the future. Balancing esports voluntary positions with full-time work and full-time study. It's up to you to establish what works best for you. Up to, you know, maybe you can calendarize your life through Google Calendar to make things a bit more streamlined. Utilize things like Trello and Asana to track your tasks and then go from there and decide what you can put in and don't oversell yourself under, you know, you don't want to underperform. You want to obviously undersell, overdeliver. And then the last question here, are, are there better pathways or training necessary than what's currently available? And I guess going back to, you know, what tools are currently missing from the esports industry in Australia, which was question one in this Q&A section, I mentioned that pathways can be quite hard to come by in this region. And that's still something that's very true. So I'm talking about, you know, from, from a young age when you're, when you're in school, Finding the right places to start developing your competitive aspects of your game, finding people to play with, playing in local level school and, and um, you know, maybe even state or national or international tournaments representing your school or university or club. You know, that is still in its infancy here in Australia. It is developing, but definitely still in its infancy here. So, you know, something like that, uh, I think is necessary for development of the scene. And also training the trainers is a hard thing too. There's not really many um, places out there where you can go as a coach and say, okay, I want to do a bachelor, a degree, a diploma or anything in esports coaching like you can in physical fitness and training. Now, obviously it isn't exactly the same thing because in physical fitness and training, you're dealing with a moving body. You're dealing with, um, you know, let's say you do a lift wrong and you can hurt yourself for life. It's not exactly the same as that fact that if you miss an orb shot and Counter-Strike that's going to impede you for the rest of your life um, depending on how big the prize pool is that you've missed out on um, but you know there's there's not that available so there's definitely some training and coaching the coaches that could be a possibility that comes up and also what I'd suggest is just asking people for information a lot of people don't reach out and ask and you would be surprised about how much information you can gather there are so many coaches out there globally right now that are performing in T1 esports teams that it's likely even if you're interested in Overwatch or CSGO and you ask a Call of Duty console coach there's very likely some great information they can share with you that can help your general skills now they're not going to share their team strategies and decisions and such even if they're in the same region as you but maybe you can ask them for some general advice and what i tie that up to is that if you're a business person you want to grab yourself a senior business mentor who has you know a successful track record and a wonderful history in the space to give you advice and who cares whether that senior business person works in the banking sector or insurance or or car sales or they own you know a yacht company and you're an esports startup and you've got nothing to do with banks or yachts or cars that's fine it's just that they have that experience in that region and they're going to be able to share with you so much valuable knowledge so definitely reach out and share and i guess for a bit of a self-plug you can always head to bigesports.gg forward slash education and you can learn a little bit more about how the industry works and the back end too because there's so much more to it than just being good at your job you need to understand networking setting up your profiles online what social medias you use for what and self-promotion because within this current industry everything's digitally based right so there's no reason that you can't transfer from being a coach who works with some tier one tier two teams to then going viral for for some fantastic video you make and then you can be a coaching twitch stream or you can be a freelance coach that only goes out you know once per season that gets called out to other countries to help teams to prepare for specific massive events like the league of legends world finals or something like that and that's obviously a bit of a pie in the sky idea but i'm trying to give you a bit of an information about if you're starting 
starting from zero, there are some definite pathways you can go ahead, and here are some lofty goals maybe you can set in the future, or some side goals. It mightn't be your goal to be the number one Twitch streamer and to beat Ninja. However, if you're Twitch streaming on the regular while you're coaching people, you might start gaining a bit of traction in there, and then you can turn this into being an influencer. One person that's done that very well is uh, twitch.tv forward slash x5 underscore pig, or Jared Krenzel, aka Pig. He always streamed, not always, but mostly streamed his StarCraft 2 training sessions, and that really helped bring people in to then when he transferred across to being primarily a commentator and personality and streamer in the space, instead of a professional player and coach, that you know he's been able to make a fantastic living for himself and a name in the global StarCraft industry in function of all of those things. So that wraps up our Q&A and also podcast 20 for today. Thanks for listening in. We will be joining you again every single week. So next week, we'll have a brand new guest. If you have any questions you'd like to ask us, you can feel free to email me directly, chris at bigesports.gg, or you can get in contact with us across our social medias, which are all Big Esports GG, across Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Or you can reach out to us on LinkedIn or the email, as mentioned before. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.